named Steve Treichler. He's a, a pastor in Minneapolis, has been there for about 25 years. Uh, and, and he and I get together every so often, probably three or four times a year. <clears throat> and he's been a, a good friend to me, a good mentor. Um, one of the things he, he's told me as, as he has um, shared his, his journey towards Jesus as a young college student, um, before he became a Christian, before he followed Jesus, he was at the University of Minnesota. And um, his, his motto in life at that time was to get drunk and break stuff. That's, that's what he lived for. Get drunk, break stuff. That's, that's it. But after he became a follower of Jesus and he met the Lord and Christ started to work in his life as a young student there, um, his life changed and his direction in life changed and his, his goal in life was not to get drunk and break stuff, but instead to uh, do whatever God calls him to do in entering into the kingdom of darkness and break stuff there. Um, and I think that that's a really good thing. Like that's what, the, that's what the Bible calls every Christian to do, to go into the kingdom of darkness and break stuff. And, and that's actually, I say that to say that that's what we're seeing in this passage in front of us today. We are seeing the Lord using his apostles, his disciples, his followers in the first century church, in the beginning of the church, uh, to, to enter into the dark places of the world, uh, the brokenness in the world, and start to make an impact and, and a dent in that. And so we're going to look at that today, but we're also going to see today something else that we need to be aware of. And this is probably something you have experienced in your own life, that as, as we press into the darkness of our, of our own lives, as we work through Christ's help, uh, with Christ's help to break the darkness of our own sins and struggles, as we go into other parts of our world and, and begin to break the, the darkness there as well, we almost always see a, a counterattack. We see a response. We see a, a counterpunch. And I've, I've witnessed it in my own life countless times. I've witnessed it in the lives of many of you in this room. And, um, and just seeing that as we press closer into Jesus, it seems like there's always something that comes on the backside of that to, to try to discourage us or distract us or divide us or whatever it might be, the tools that, that the devil uses in our world today. He doesn't have much going for him because of Christ's death and resurrection. He actually doesn't win the war, but the battles that he wages are, are really utilizing this discouragement or distraction or division. And those are the tactics he primarily uses. But as we press into Jesus, we see that he meets us with resistance, that, 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 that the kingdom of darkness doesn't want to be broken, right? But, but it happens all the time. So that's what we're seeing here in this passage. We're seeing amazing things happen in the church and through the church in the world. And then we're gonna see the counterpunch and, and how the response to that takes place in this situation. So those are the kind of the two angles we're looking at this morning in the passage and if you want to just start with me at verse 12 through 16 of Acts 5, here's, here's the, I'll just read the whole passage. It gives us some, some uh, insight into what was happening. It says, Now, many signs and wonders 
which is biblical language for miracles happening, were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So the apostles are the 12 men that Jesus commissioned to lead the church. And he's utilizing those 12 specifically, bringing about these, these signs, what, the, what commentators refer to as the apostolic signs, that the ministry of Jesus is continuing through the apostles. And it says they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico, which is a part of the temple complex, kind of just outside of it, like the porch of Solomon's temple. None of the rest dared to join them. <clears throat> that is the people, not the, not the believers, but unbelievers, I think is what's being referred to there. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So what's happening in this section is pretty simple. It's an overview, right? It's not getting into all of the specific details, but it's giving us the big picture of the amazing things that the apostles were doing by the power of God's spirit working through them. And there's primarily three things happening. We're seeing the salvation of multitudes of people. People coming to Jesus in genuine faith, belief and trust in him, turning their sins over to him for forgiveness. We are seeing salvation being given in, in uh, that, that way. Right? That's verse 14. It says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So this is, this is something that's interesting is as we've been tracking through the first five chapters of this, this book, uh, we've, we've up to this point been given some pretty specific numbers. We know that things started with the 12 and about 120 or so other people in the church before the Holy Spirit came. Then the day of Pentecost comes and the day of Pentecost brings about 3,000 people added to that number. And then in chapter four, at some point, we see that there's uh, about 5,000 men. They're just, they've stopped counting everyone and they're just now counting the men, uh, the heads of household more or less in that 5,000 number. So if you're counting just the men, then you have the women and, and children who believe too. So you're talking conservatively 10, 15 maybe 20,000 people, ma massive numbers, right? And so now in this passage, Luke doesn't even give us a number. He do, he do, he's like, we've, I've stopped counting. There's too many people. Uh, he just says multitudes of men and women were coming to believe in the Lord and were added to his number. So we've stopped even giving numbers to it. That, that is a, that's making a huge dent in the kingdom of darkness in Jerusalem at this time. So we see the salvation of people. We also see physical healings happening in this scene, right? We see in verse 15 that they carried out the sick in the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. That's pretty interesting. Now, it's specifically Peter, right? Because he's an apostle, and he's one of the lead guys. He's probably the, the main guy that's leading this thing. Um, he's kind of the first 
among equals or what you want to refer to that as the, the senior pastor, more or less, in, in our terminology. He's the guy who's kind of there and, and up front at this point. And the Lord is using even his shadow as he walks through the streets to heal people. Peter's not doing the healing. The Lord is. But, but he's using Peter as a means to do this. So we're seeing healing happening physically. And we're also seeing spiritual healing happening. In verse 16, it says that they gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. So this would be demonic, uh, satanic oppression happening. And everyone who came was being healed. They were all healed. So we're seeing the, the chains of spiritual darkness breaking. We're seeing the physical symptoms being healed. And we're, we're seeing salvation through Christ for multitudes of people. This passage is clearly parallel to Jesus' own earthly ministry. We can't read this and go, this is unique. Jesus did this thing, these things too. And in fact, Matthew 4 uh, 23 through 25 gives us a, sn a snapshot of Jesus's ministry in this regard. He says, it says here that he went through all of Galilee, that's Jesus, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. We see Jesus begins this in his life of destroying the kingdom of darkness. And, and that's what all these healings that we see uh, point us to. Because the natural question that we have to ask or would, would ask as we read this is, well, why isn't this happening now? Why aren't the Christians walking into every hospital in the world and just our shadows just casting healing on all these people? Well, we have to understand, first of all, that this was an apostolic ministry. This, this was happening in a, in a season of the church's existence before the scriptures were written to attest to these things. And there was a need for there to be a, a miraculous indication of God's work. We don't need that to happen today in the same way because we have the fullness of Scripture. But I want to I argue this point that there's, there is actually, this is happening in our world. It is happening. It's happening in each and every one of us as we come to faith in Jesus and the sin in us is breaking down. That we are being sanctified gradually through life that we may not see full and complete physical healing from every ailment, but neither did every single person in those days either. This was a subset of people. There were points in Jesus's ministry where he healed the masses that came to him. There were also points where he did miracles on one specific person, right? Like there, there's, this is pointing us to something more significant. And that is the significance of the life to come. Christians believe in this life and a future life, a life in glory. And the reality is, is that this is pointing us to the fact that every one of us, as we enter into the kingdom of God, as we enter into Jesus's presence, will be fully healed. We will be completely restored. We will, in fact, have resurrected bodies like the Lord Jesus. 
that nothing that we have in this life is going to remain broken when we're with Jesus. And so, yeah, this is a foretaste of that that happened for these people at this time. It is not the norm, although I still would argue that Jesus does do these things um, for some in situations in which he feels that would draw him or believes that that would draw someone to Christ. However, is that the norm for everyone? No, but it will be for each of us as we come into his glory. And so what we're seeing is the work of Jesus destroying the darkness, just going into that kingdom and breaking stuff. And he's, he's bringing salvation to us, salvation from sin, salvation from guilt, salvation and healing spiritually in our lives. And, and that this is just a true shadow of what will come in the days that Christ returns or that we enter into his presence. What we're seeing in Acts then is that the church continues this ministry. They're entering into the kingdom of darkness and they are breaking stuff. They're doing it through the power of God in Jesus. We see also, I want to hone in here, that what we're seeing in the people who are being healed is a a particular demeanor, an attitude, uh, and that is of humility, we are seeing here a picture of what Jesus would refer to in the Beatitudes as the poor in spirit, those who recognize their need. And they are coming to Jesus knowing that they need him. They're coming to his apostles knowing that they have the ability to do something for them. And they are owning up to their, their, their weakness. They are poor in spirit. They know that they need to receive this salvation and that's why they're there. And that's why God ultimately heals them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are humble enough to receive what he has for us. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing broken people. We're seeing people who have nowhere else to turn. They can't depend on themselves. And they are going to Christ through, through the ministry of the apostles, they are coming to Christ. And, and that is a beautiful thing. And they're being delivered through it. But the next section here, as we get into verse 17 through the end of the chapter, is going to show us a stark contrast. A contrast from the poor in spirit to the proud and, and to those who believe in their own righteousness And we're actually going to see a pretty dramatic difference here in in how the people being healed are responding and how the people who are in power are responding. We see uh, in verse, if you want to look here, in verse 17 through 26, we'll just take it in a few sections here. Uh, It says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came, And those who were with him, 
they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Um, so there, what we're seeing in this is uh, a, a massive amount of jealousy. That's the motivation here. It says that they were filled with jealousy at the end of verse 17. The, the leaders of Israel were filled with jealousy over what was happening in Israel. They felt like this thing was usurping their power, authority, and leadership. They're looking at these 12 apostles and they're going, they are drawing everybody after them. We can't stand for this. We've got to do something about it. And so they arrest the 12 apostles. Now, this, this is similar to what happened a couple weeks ago when we saw Peter and John arrested and brought before the same group of people. And in that case, it was just Peter and John the two of them, they were just put in like the temple. The temple must have had a holding cell of some sort. So they just put them in there for the night and then bring them in. In this case, it's all of the apostles, all 12. They are then put in the public prison and left there for the night. But what ends up happening is that an angel comes, lets them out, says, go keep preaching, go in the morning and go preach. And they do, they get out. Somehow, miraculously, this was a miracle, right? They got out without being noticed, without being seen. And, and they go to the temple the next morning and begin to do what they have always been doing, preaching, teaching, leading people to Jesus. So when the, when the whole group of the Senate of Israel shows up together to, to meet with these guys, they're not in the prison cell. Eventually, someone figures out they're in the temple and they bring them. Okay, so there's jealousy here. That's the motivator that, that leads the, the leaders to do this. And uh, ultimately, they're now brought peacefully to the Senate of Israel. Uh, they're brought peacefully because, it's interesting, they, didn't, they weren't brought by force because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. The people in Israel were, would have probably lost their minds if the, if the 12 apostles were mistreated in, in their view. And so, so they just bring them nice and calmly to the council. All right, let's look at 27 through 32. It says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So, this is referring back to the, the conversation that Peter and John had, where this, this group of people, this, these leaders, told them not to preach in the name of Jesus. And here they are. And at that time, Peter and John told them, we're not going to listen to you. We're, we're going to keep doing this. And, and so they did, right? And so now they're brought back, being told, hey, we told you not to do this, yet here you are. You're filling Jerusalem with your teaching and then, he sa- and then they say, you intend to bring this man, Jesus' blood, upon us. 
which is an interesting thing to complain about because his blood is upon them. They killed him. I don't know why this is a problem for them. Like they, they knew that they killed Jesus. And so I don't, I don't know, but they, they have a problem with that too. Um, so verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand, at his right hand, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things so that the Holy Spirit, whom God has, has given to those who obey him. Here we see the apostles explaining calmly and clearly and boldly that it is God who's at work in this, that God has brought salvation through Jesus and that this salvation is offered by giving repentance of sin and forgiveness of sins. Once again, we're seeing this as almost a second, like a second go where they are saying once again to the leaders, you can come to Jesus. You can believe in Christ. Trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. They are preaching the gospel message to the leaders of Israel as much as they're preaching that message to everyone else as well. These guys are not being excluded from the message being proclaimed. Okay, so they hear the gospel. But what happens? Look at verse 33. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So you've got a group of people literally being brought to the streets, laying on mats and cots for the chance and the hope of being healed through Jesus. And then you've got these, these guys who are so self-righteous that when they hear the message of good news, they are not joyful. They become enraged and murderous. They want to murder the 12 apostles right there. They are furious. Well, so what happens? This is not a good scene, right? At least initially. Verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and he gave orders to the men uh, to put the men outside for a little while. So they take the 12 apostles and they let them outside for a bit. And he said to them, the council, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So this is interesting. 
Because the, the crowd of men here in the Senate, the leaders of Israel, there were probably about 70 or so of them uh, in this room, got so enraged at what the apostles said, which is just the gospel message that Jesus lived and died and rose again. And he did that for our salvation. That enrages the people in this room to the point that they want to kill them. And what happens is that this is brought down by a guy named Gamaliel. We, we don't know very much about him. We know he was a teacher of the law. We know he was a Pharisee. We know he was in the room, so he was a leader. We know he was held in honor by the people, and, and so he was a respected person. We, we know from outside of biblical literature, there was a history of the Jews that recorded Gamaliel as being the grandson of a very, very famous rabbi from before Christ, who, who was, so kind of through that lineage, Gamaliel is being revered and respected because of his family. But regardless of whether that's the truth or not, this guy stands up in the, the, the midst of these people and he says, listen, calm down. <laughs> Take care of what you're going to do with these men. He's basically calling these people who are just in a full-on um, emotional f- firestorm. He says, think for five seconds here, guys. Just use your brains for a little bit, okay? It's okay to be a feeler. It's okay to feel things. I wouldn't know what that's like, but, but some of you who feel things, it's okay. It's okay to be a feeler, but we do have to also have brains too, and that's okay. both of those things are good things. And so Gamaliel just goes, all right, let's take a breath here. Now, what's interesting is that this is uh, a common grace. It's, it's God using a non-believer. There's no indication that Gamaliel is a believer in Jesus. He's not necessarily, but he's being used by God to be reasonable and intelligent and to draw people to what they need to hear, which is, and here's how he approaches it. He uses two examples from their history, which are not recorded in the Bible. It's not biblical history. Um, it's, it's extra biblical or it's in between the two Old Testament and New Testament, somewhere in the middle. There was about 400 years between the closing of the Old Testament where nothing really was written down or said until Jesus comes and establishes the, the new covenant. And so sometime in those 400 years, these two guys show up on the scene. This guy, Thutis, who get, claims to be somebody, gets about 400 guys to join him in some sort of rebellion, and they end up killing Thutis and all of his guys scatter, and nothing comes of it. And then he uses the example of Judas, the Galilean, who also tried to stir up a rebellion. And uh, this happened during the census, which was probably the same census that happened when Jesus was born, right? If you remember from the Christmas story, Jesus, uh, well, Mary and Joseph, Mary being pregnant with Jesus at the time, go to Bethlehem to register for the census. So it probably was that, uh, where this guy Judas from Galilee rises up, also gets some people to follow him, and he too is killed, and everybody falls apart. So the point that Gamaliel makes with these two examples from history is that if these guys, these 12 men, are really just doing the same thing that these other guys did, which was just try to stir things up and make a mess. He's like, 
it's not going to go anywhere. Eventually, this is all going to clamp down and, and be, be done. But if this is actually of God, nothing we do here is going to stop it anyways. So at the end of the day, his answer to the, to the council is, stop freaking out about this. Just let it be, right? The Beatles, right? Let it be, just let it be. And see where it goes. If God's in it, then it can't be stopped regardless. The guy actually has some good theology, some good understanding, at least of God's sovereignty, right? And so here we see the crowd of, of angry leaders in Israel go, okay, let's take a breath. Because God provided this guy to bring the temperature down. That's good. God did this for his apostles. All right. Let's look at verse 40. We'll pick it up at the end of verse 39 and read till just the next few uh, verses. So they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles uh, to come back in, they, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Okay, so they took his advice, kind of. <laughs> like, they, they still beat the apostles. They, they probably, this is probably a reference to the, the common Jewish punishment was 39 lashes or 40 lashes less one, uh, which is what Paul also received from, from the Jews at one point in his ministry. This was a very common punishment where they would take your shirt off, they'd make you get down on your hands and knees and they'd beat your back with a whip 39 times. This, was not a, this is not an easy thing to take. Right? They, were, they were bloodied after this. They were, they were wounded for sure. So even though they didn't murder them, because Gamaliel brought the, t- the, the tone down a bit, they still punished them. They still brought physical pain upon them. And then they charged them, once again, to not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So obviously, we, we're not privy to the whole conversation, but at some point, someone else in that room was like, yeah, 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 Gamaliel, that's good and everything. We won't kill them, but we can't just let them out of here without anything, so we got to beat them up a little bit. So they do. That was like probably a concession that they made. Like, all right, well, I guess beating is better than murdering. So let's, let, we'll go with it. So they, they do that. Look at what happens uh, in verse uh, 41. Then they left the presence of the council, the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus. So this is an amazing thing. So I've been talking this whole time about the counterpunch, right? You've got the kingdom of darkness is being broken into. It's stuff is breaking. They're trashing it. They're, they're bringing healing and gospel ministry to the people. And there's a, there is a response from the kingdom of darkness, utilizing this council of leaders. They bring these guys in. They beat them up. They threaten them. They, re, they demand that they never speak again of Jesus. 
And yet, though they are beaten, they are not deterred. They're not deterred from two things. They're not deterred from joy. They left the council rejoicing. And they are not deterred from speaking the truth of Jesus. Day by day, they go into the temple. Even with these threats hanging over them, they go back to the very place they were, in the temple, house to house, they are speaking and teaching that Jesus is the Christ. They're not deterred. They keep going. So here's what's happening. The counterpunch is an attempt to, to discourage these disciples to the point that they quit preaching the gospel. Discouragement is one of the key things that happens as we press into Jesus. We Get, get an onslaught of discouragement. But these guys aren't discouraged. They're in fact the opposite of that. They are rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Why is that? Well, I can't help but think that these, because these were the 12 men who followed Jesus in his earthly ministry, they witnessed him, they listened to him, and Jesus prepared them for this. I'm sure that the words of Jesus were ringing in their ears. The words of Jesus that the way into the kingdom is down. It's not up. It's down and then up. There is a, there is a path of suffering and then there's a path of glory. That's the path that every Christian is called to. And Jesus in his Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, he, he says these words, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Then hear these next words. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus prepared his disciples for this moment and hearing those words being reminded to them by the Spirit of God to rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. They walked out of that beating rejoicing. Chris Costaldo, who wrote a book recently, it just came out this year called The Upside Down Kingdom, unpacks the Beatitudes for us in this book. And on this per particular one, here, here's what he says, I thought was helpful as I read through it in the last week or two. He says, how then do you, you might wonder, is persecution good news, even to the point of producing joy? Simply put, it is the privilege of living for Christ's sake. It is the joy of now embracing by faith the ultimate reward that is promised in the kingdom of heaven. We see this attitude continue on through Acts. We see it in the ministry of the Apostle Paul later on. We see Paul say to the Philippians that he gets to share in Christ's sufferings. That is a, and he says that in a good way, in a, in a positive sense, that he gets to share in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because that's the greatest privilege we can possess. And so when we think about our own walks with Christ, now acknowledging that nothing like this has ever happened to any one of us in this room, 
None of us have been dragged before councils. None of us have been beaten within an inch of our life because someone hates Jesus. We, we in this room, in this country, have not faced that. And I think we should be thankful for that on one level, but also know that that's not true of everyone. Even in our own day, in our own generation, there are people suffering for Jesus in ways we can't even comprehend. But how do we, even though we're not, we're not dealing with this exactly, we do suffer for Jesus, don't we? We do. Seems a little bit trite at times, comparatively, but we do. So how can we keep going in joy for Jesus and boldness about Jesus when we feel like people are against us? And maybe they are against us in this. Well, the answer is pretty clear throughout Scripture. Um, Paul gets it to us in Ephesians 6, where he, to summarize it all, 6, 10 through 20, if you want to read those verses at some point in time, um, the, the summary of those verses is that we need to stand firm, persevere, keep going into the kingdom of darkness in your own life and in the world around us to break stuff, but that there will be a counterpunch. We fight a battle against spiritual forces, not against flesh and blood, he says, but against the spiritual forces of darkness. And so then he gives us a list of the armor of God by which we equip ourselves to withstand that onslaught. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the breastplate of, of righteousness. We have the shield of faith. We have the, the belt of truth. We, we equip ourselves through the gospel for this, for this onslaught and we don't give up and we keep pressing forward. That's what we're seeing in Acts. We're seeing the early church continue going. And I think it's, it's easy for us to stand here or sit here and go, well, I've never been through that, so this doesn't have anything to do with me. It, it really does. It's just different for us. And maybe it someday won't be different for us. Who knows? I can't predict the future. But what I can say is that while we have a lot of comfort here, we still experience the counterpunch as we press into Jesus. And the more God breaks down addictions, breaks down uh, things that are, that are keeping us from him, these walls, these barriers that keep us from Jesus, the more we move into him, the more we're going to expect the counterattack. And so the answer for that is keep pressing in, keep looking to Jesus, don't give up and find joy in it. When the next time you feel the, the weight of Satan's attack on your life, rejoice and be glad because you're going in the right direction. You're going in the right, you know that you're going in the right direction because otherwise there wouldn't be counterattack. Keep pressing in. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this reminder from your apostles' ministry in this passage of scripture. I pray that you, and I, you would help us, me and each person in this room, uh, to, to continue to press in to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the boldness that we are called to have for him. And, and that, that whatever may come, whatever spiritual attacks may come, whatever physical attacks may come, that, that they are all within your control and all within your hand. And nothing is outside of, of what you want for us. And so help us to trust and lean in to you that we're going in the right direction whenever we go towards you. 
We can't go wrong. And I pray you would help us all to persevere and, and that you would keep us on the, on the path. I pray for our time now as we respond to you through song, as we remember your death for us on the, on the cross at the table of communion, uh, as we prepare to give our tithes and offerings, as we worship you in these ways, would you help us um, to respond with joyful hearts? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.